there are many reasons to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Many. We worship Him because He's worthy. We worship Him because of His great love and mercy that He has poured out on us. We worship Him because it puts feet on our faith. It puts our relationship with Him in perspective. We worship Him because as believers we're commanded to worship Him. We worship Him because the Scriptures also share that it pleases Him when we worship Him. Worship keeps our hearts focused on Christ. Worship prepares Christians for what we'll ultimately do for all eternity. A few months ago, we began our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And I think that if we were just to look back at the brief journey that we've made so far through the opening two chapters, we could see a number of reasons why Christ is worthy to be worshipped. We worship Him because He fulfilled the prophecies of His coming. We worship Christ because of the Father's affirmation of Him at His baptism, for His victory over Satan and temptation, for His authority over demons, for the commencement of His preaching ministry, for His many healings, for His wisdom and ability to confront the religious Pharisees and the false religious system. It appears that the reasons to worship the Lord Jesus Christ go well beyond the time that we have, right? As well as our capacity to worship Him for all that He is. And I think we all know that's why we need eternity, right? That's why we should have an eternal perspective. Well, today we've arrived at a passage that I will hope that I hope will allow us to, to slow down just a little bit and worship Christ for all that He is. It is a passage that really allows us to see just how powerful His ministry continues to be as He continues to draw people to Himself, as He continues to heal those who are afflicted, as He continues to exercise His authority over the demonic realm. It is Christ's ministry to the watching world. And the passage that we're going to study is found in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And if you're not there already, I invite you to turn there and allow me to read the passage that will be our focus for today. From the New American Standard, it says this, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia. And beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. As your notes indicate, there are three testimonies of Christ's ministry that should cause us to recognize and worship him for who he is, the Son of God. John Piper has said it best that missions exist because worship does not. And Jesus has led the way by fulfilling the primary purpose 
and mission for which he came. Yes, he came to fulfill the Father's will and ultimately to die on the cross and to pay the, the, the penalty for sin, but he did so much more as he ministered by example and discipled his followers to see what their mission would eventually look like as he ministered and as he pointed people to himself and as he helped them to see and understand their need for the gospel. And all of this taking place according to God's plan so that God would be worshipped. The theme of the gospel of Mark is Jesus as servant. And this also provides us with another reason to worship him. In previous sermons, you may have recalled that I've shared that Jesus' suffering servant role goes well beyond the Passion Week. To some degree, his entire life involves suffering servanthood. And it begins with him being born in a stable. And then also having his life threatened right from the very beginning. And once his ministry began, Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And it was so intense that his humanity required that angels come minister to him afterward. He also suffered persecution just in uh, the recent studies that we've looked at with the opposition that he faced from the Pharisees. The intensity of the opposition was real. And we saw encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees for a number of weeks Surely our Lord would withdraw to rest from such an intense season of ministry. Not hardly. Now he withdraws with his disciples to the sea, only to have thousands of people following him, pressing into him, asking him to heal their physical needs around the clock. The demands on him seem constant throughout his ministry. And it's good to make this connection to his suffering servant role because it's rooted in the bigger picture of this gospel account. It's good for us to see. Have you ever been tempted to think that ministry is supposed to be easy or convenient? What is your ministry mentality? Your ministry mindset? Do you ever feel like it's nonstop and that maybe somehow it's not supposed to be that way. The Gospel of Mark is allowing us to see firsthand how Jesus served and fulfilled his role as servant. And though there's nothing prescriptive for the believer in our passage that we're going to study today, I do believe that there are principles and and points of application that we can draw on as we look to the Lord And we draw on Him for strength and our encouragement from Him. Let's worship Him today. Let's worship Him by recognizing Him for who He is in light of what the passage intends to teach us. The authorial intent of this passage is for the reader to see the reality of who Jesus Christ is. That's it. And it also allows us to witness three testimonies of Christ's ministry that should cause us to recognize and to worship the Son of God. Let's start with the testimony of his diverse following in verses 7 through 9. God's plan 
of salvation has always involved people, right? Starting in the creation account, and then stemming to his electing choice of Israel, and then even to the prophet Jonah, who was the, the, the first prophet sent to a Gentile city to call them to repentance, God was gathering a harvest to himself in the Old Testament, using the nation of Israel to bear testimony of their faith. Things continue in the New Testament as people are called to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the gospel. And of course, the body of people gathered would eventually become known as the church. And the Apostle Paul expresses the reality of this dispensational transition, describing it as a mystery that was revealed to him at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. What was the mystery? Just listen to Paul's explanation starting in chapter 3, verse 3, where he says that by the revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And he's just referring to what he just had written earlier in chapter 2. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in our generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul shares that this mystery was hidden. And then he's actually going to go on and say, but now it's revealed. And the reason it was revealed, he shares in verse 10, which says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Through the church. Why am I sharing all of this, you ask? Because it helps us understand the heart of God as he's drawing a diversity of people to himself. A diversity of people which the Lord Jesus Christ was ministering to. And this is especially reflected by the makeup of the crowd that we see in our passage. Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. And a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Verse 7 starts out by describing the fact that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And this makes perfect sense if you'll just look at verse 6. According to what we studied in our last study, right? It makes perfect sense considering the conspiracy that we just witnessed. The Pharisees and the Herodians are now plotting to destroy. They're plotting to kill him. And so naturally it makes sense that Jesus would relocate to another ministry location for the sake of safety. As we'll see, much of the crowd would follow him. And verse 7 continues by saying, And a great multitude from Galilee followed. The Galilean multitude consisted of locals who had seen and heard of the recent miracles of his ministry. It was a large crowd because Galilee at this time was densely populated. Some commentators 
estimate that tens of thousands of people were present. What I want to draw our attention to is not related to the number of people so much as it is the makeup of all the people. And we have a map. And I, I got a slide here so that we could pull this up. Thank you, slides team, for your faithful service. And um, I wanted you to gain a sense of these locations on the map. thought this would be really good so we could understand what Mark is ultimately communicating here. Huey gave me his pointer, so I'm going to have some fun with this. Well, let's spell it. Pastor John. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, we're not going to spell anything with it. But I want to draw your attention. We can see that Jerusalem's located right in the, the, the center of the, the green area. And um, up north is the region of Galilee. You can see the Sea of Galilee right here. And so the first few places that he mentions is Galilee and Judea, right? And so I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that these were predominantly Jewish territories. Actually, Jerusalem is on there too. So uh, these, these would be predominantly all Jewish territories. Next, uh, that gets mentioned, it's, it's um, Edumia, which you'll see right down here in the south. And so from where Jesus is currently ministering up here in the region of Galilee, this is about 120 miles south down to the region of Edumia. And then it also mentions across the Jordan. Here you can see the Jordan River right down through here. And so when we're talking about uh, the, the Transjordan, we're talking about Decapolis and Perea and Galilee. And this is where Herod would have, would, would have been ruling. He would have been in charge of all those regions. And so this would have been a mixed group of people. This would have been Gentiles, a mix of Gentiles and Jews that live predominantly in these areas. And then the last two places that he mentions, Tyre and Sidon, which if you look right up here at the top of the map, you'll see right out here on the, the, the port. And I only got five of the six locations on the one map that I could find. If you go about 25 or 30 miles just north right here, Sidon is right up here. And these were both port areas. But whenever the northwest region of Palestine was referred to, they would just say like uh, Tyre and Sidon. It's like saying L.A. and San Diego, and you can actually be referring to Southern California. People just say, sometimes they don't even mention San Diego. They just say L.A., and it's a reference, right? And so this was true of these cities up here. But because they were port cities... It was natural that a lot of people that came from other places overseas, that there was a large population, and it was predominantly Gentiles. So understanding the geography, thank you, slides team, helps us understand that Mark was trying to share that the Lord's ministry was impacting everyone everywhere. And it also provides a glimpse into the mystery that the Apostle Paul eventually discloses in Ephesians 3, as Jew and Gentile will be united in Christ. On a much smaller scale, a microscopic level, it provides a glimpse of heaven, where in Revelation, the Apostle John captures this picture, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Does not such a thought just make you want to worship? 
doesn't it? It fuels our heart to worship. As a New Testament Gentile believer, this is our picture to behold of the beginning of Christ's gospel ministry that would faithfully come down through the centuries as the Holy Spirit allowed the gospel baton to be passed to the apostles to initiate the commission and then entrust the ministry to faithful, other faithful men and women. And then they passed it on to other faithful men and women. And then who has it reached? Us. Us. It reached us. And it started here with Christ's ministry to the watching world. Now, as we've learned in the past, the crowds weren't always an indication of faith, right? It didn't indicate that that, that they were believers. Many did seek the Lord for healing or other reasons. But there were some who came to saving faith, and we get to celebrate that. This crowd pursuing Christ is so large, excuse me, that it actually required Jesus using his disciples as the crowd controllers. Look at verse 9. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. We, we must remember that people who have traveled a great distance, and again, there weren't trains, there weren't planes, there weren't automobiles. These are people that were traveling a great distance to come see the Lord Jesus Christ. And when people travel a great distance, they're not going to be denied. You travel all the way from the East Coast to come out here to Disneyland, and you show up, and there's a large crowd, right? You don't care how long it takes. You're getting in, right? You, you came, you came to, to witness it. And the same was true with this crowd. They would not be denied. There were hordes followed by hordes, wave upon wave of needy people, all demanding attention. And news of our Lord's ability and his compassion to heal had spread far and wide. So great was the crowd that Christ was in physical danger. And the word for crowd in verse 9 is literally the word crush, just as the ESV translates it. So, the Lord requested that his disciples hover close with a small boat and that they be ready just in case the crowd became overwhelming. This is like the car running outside, okay, just, j- just in case. And, and, and maybe you're um, coming to a time where your, your wife's going to have a baby. You know, you want to make sure that the garage door is working, right, and the car can get out, that the bags are packed so that you can depart just in case there needed to be a getaway. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary humorously said this, knowing the apostle Peter, he was probably officiously manning the boat and formidably staring down the unruly multitude. I just thought that was funny. Might be the only one. Okay. The disciples were like security staff at a rock concert. And the boat was going to function like the, the motorcade does for the president of the United States. If all of a sudden the crowd poses somewhat of a threat, there's going to be an avenue to get out. And if anyone deserves a crowd following them, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He alone is worthy. What I find interesting is the crowd pursuing Jesus in this account really reflects the world that we live in today. Many pursue Jesus for self-serving reasons. 
There's a consumer mentality that's even developed within the church at large. People want to know what Jesus can do for them and how the church can cater to their preferences. One pastor referred to it as the Disneyfication of the church. As entertainment became the priority, as the Word of God gets choked out, and as the teaching ministry and preaching ministries get minimized and they're replaced with consumer mentalities, church consumers openly comparing ministries by their facilities, the coffee options, the comfort of their chairs, and convenient service times. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, lost in the process is the recognition and the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfully, within the crowd in our account, there were people of genuine faith that just wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn from their Lord and to draw near to Him. And if there's one observation that we can take away from this mixed crowd, it's that they would do anything to get to the feet of Jesus. Can the same be said of us? Or do we allow things to get in our way? The world is always throwing impediments, right? The demands of time, the, the, the worries and the stresses of the day. And we can wake up first thing in the morning and think about what we're going to eat for breakfast. And yet we've given no time to reflect on our spiritual need for breakfast, right? Our spiritual need for spiritual food that is going to sustain us for the troubles of the day. And I think we can take this lesson from the crowd and uh, apply it. Are we, are, you know, I think that if, if the Lord returned, right, and we knew and it was reported that he was here in the United States somewhere, I think we would all be, be ready to go there. I think we'd all be racing to get there. I think every true believer would be rushing, right, to get to his, to get to his feet. But maybe that's worth a picture and illustration in the mind. Would I, would I, maybe I, maybe I wouldn't. Maybe there's something that would, well, I'll wait until it gets confirmed or I don't know. You know, I love that picture of the Apostle Peter when he saw the Lord after he was resurrected and they're out in the boat and they return to their normal jobs and you know what? They were rowing to shore and Peter could not get there fast enough that he, he jumped out of the boat and, and swam because he loved the Lord so much that he needed to be at his feet. What a picture for us. What a picture of worship. This is the first testimony of Christ's ministry that should cause us to recognize him and to worship the Son of God. It's the testimony of his diverse following the second testimony is his healing touch. Verse 10 says this, For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Here our verse contains two aspects. His healing power and their healing demand. It's true that the Lord healed many with his healing touch. And there is a power implied in his touch here. 
In the parallel account in Luke 6.19, it says, And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Love that. Our English word translated power comes from a familiar term, the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our English word dynamite. This was dynamite power, healing power, exuding from the Lord Jesus Christ. How incredible is this? There was a healing power that flowed out of the reality and presence of Christ as he ministered on the earth. In Mark chapter 5, just a couple chapters away, and we'll get to study an account that actually, well, it actually helps us understand. Turn there with me. In Mark chapter 5, turn forward just a, a couple chapters. And starting in verse 25, we need to see this because it helps us understand our context today. Starting in verse 25, it says, A woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but had rather grown worse. She probably needed some good Kaiser physicians. You know, they would have helped her out, but... She, she was able not to uh, make any improvements. And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, listen, for she thought if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, and here we have the, the ministry bouncers again, right? The, the, the security staff. You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? You know, they're like, Come on, man. How, how would you even be able to tell? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. What an amazing testimony with spiritual implications for us. When we're in need of healing. When we're in spiritual need of healing. And are afflicted. Does our pursuit of Christ led by faith bring us to Him for healing? You'd have us come to Him. When things are broken. When things are difficult. When your marriage is broken. And is suffering. And afflicted. Maybe your relationship with your parents is offset. Fellowship and communication is broken down. Are you turning to the power of Christ for your healing? When we struggle in the deep recesses of our heart and we harbor bitterness and we're unwilling to forgive someone who may have sinned against us, are we allowing his healing power? through the gospel to bring us the restoration. If we humble ourselves, the Lord provides His power to heal every spiritual wound and affliction. And we see a glimpse of this within the healing demand 
within our verse. Look at the middle of verse 10. Again, it says, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. What's so amazing, we've mentioned this, I think, one other time in the past, was that Jesus was always inclined to serve him. He knew those that were seeking and coming to him with impure motives. And those who lacked faith, and yet he healed them. What a heart of mercy and grace. And we know the Lord's primary motivation was always to preach the gospel of the kingdom. The necessity of repentance and belief that began back in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And physical healing was only secondary. It was a means to authenticate the message. But the truth is, Jesus' words held little attraction for the crowds. What they wanted to experience and see were healings and miracles that offered a temporal and physical benefit, losing sight of the message that could secure them spiritually and eternally. In the end, they were rejecting the gospel. And I love what William Grinnell writes when speaking to the world's rejection of the gospel he had this to say but one might reason even though men faltered at accepting Christ's lowly birth and parentage surely they would worship him when the rays of his divinity started shining through all the miracles and wonders that followed this man when his own lips showed his authority and told the joyful message he brought from the father Would they not thirstily drink in the salvation preached to them? No. They persisted in cursed unbelief and obstinate rejection of Christ. Has the world changed much since then? Does Christ in his gospel meet with any kinder welcome today? The worst that Christ does to those who come to him is to put them into a place of life and salvation. Yet thousands somehow expect to hear better news from the world and relegate the gospel to a foreign language which does not concern them, at least for the present. They like to keep the gospel at a comfortable distance, assuming there will be time enough to take care of it when they're about ready to enter the next world. And it's so true. Call it the, guys, the gospel Heisman. Really it is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's keeping it at a distance. Alright? I know what I need to do. I know that there are parts of my life that I'm hanging on to. That, that I got a foot in the world and a foot in the church. I know that I need to be all in. There are people who live that. It's torture. It's absolute torture. It's absolute torture. That could be you here today, my friend. And that you need to be all in for the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that you are putting the entire stack of, of chips of your life all in for the Lord Jesus Christ and counting on Him for your salvation. It's an all-in moment. 
And the beauty of it is, is that we, we win. We win when we trust in him. We win every single time when we trust in him. Sure, is life hard? Yes. Are there going to be needs? Physical? Yes. But we must make the spiritual need our priority. And we live in a world consumed by physical needs and remedies while spiritual needs are neglected. And Christ's ministry to the watching world provides the testimony of His healing touch that should cause us to recognize and to worship the Son of God and encourage us to minister in the same way that He did with a spiritual emphasis that He had. You know, this is why I love medical missions so much. Raise your hand if you've been on a medical mission trip. Anyone in our church? Few people have gone. I know Victoria has gone to Malawi. What a platform, right? And I think this provides an Uh, This provides a a glimpse, a great glimpse, into the ministry of Christ. Why? Because people were coming to him for their physical needs. But yet he was trying to help them see their spiritual need. And this is exactly what takes place on a medical mission trip. The platform for the physical need allows a bridge to be built and to bear witness to the people who are serving the physical needs of the people where they went as a testimony of their faith in Christ to help them see their spiritual need. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. And this helps us, truly helps us to understand what was taking place here with the Lord. And I think sometimes, just even as it relates to our requests that we make in our prayer lives, we're praying for all these physical things. Don't we? Oftentimes, we pray for all these physical, you know, better job, um, school. Uh, you know, we can get caught up praying for all, all these temporal things. What about praying for our sanctification? What about f- praying for our growth and our Christ likeness? What about praying for our gospel effectiveness? The the spiritual things that are going to make an eternal difference. This world does not help. Because it caters and features the physical need. Which is diametrically opposed to people's spiritual need. Well, the third and final testimony comes in our final two verses And it is the testimony of the disturbed demons. Look at verse 11. It says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. Here our verse helps us to see that the unclean spirits or demons were terrified by Christ's presence. And this is reflected by their physical and verbal reactions. First, our verse says that when the unclean spirits saw him, they would literally fall down before him. I like how one commentator expressed it. The crowds may fall upon Jesus, but the evil spirits fall before him. And the Greek word translated fall before occurs eight times in the New Testament. And each time, with the exception of one, it conveys the image of an inferior prostrating himself in homage before a superior. 
And remember from our previous study on demons, that demons are actually fallen what? Angels, right? Fallen angels. So the demons have a unique perspective in that they have seen Christ be before and they've seen him in the heavenly realm. Before their fall with Satan, they were once included with the myriads and myriads of angels and the entire heavenly host gathered around the throne of God, worshiping and bowing down nonstop. And here they encounter one-on-one Jesus and recognize who he is and what is their immediate reaction. Boom. Get down. On your face. Get down. And fear, it gripped them. And they, it, it gripped them so much that the, there's no way that they could even remain standing. And we, 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 we see, you know, Paul even shares that when every, every knee is going to bend, right? Every knee, every, everyone's going to bow. Everyone is going to bow. And I'm confident that many in, in the room have heard that we should take, notes, take note of the demon's reaction for our own spiritual benefit. You've heard that before, and we should. There, 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 there should be uh, an awesome fear considering the, the reality, the holy reality of who God is. And... By that, we know that perfect love casts out fear too, right? Going back to 1 John. So it's not a, um, a frightful fear, but it is an awesome fear. It is a fear of reverence. It's a fear of, 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 of purity. It's that Isaiah 6 mentality. Whoa, whoa, who, who am I? Who am I? And heaven is a holy place filled with the presence and the transcendence of a holy God. And those of us who believe will join the heavenly host that worships God one day. We will be able to stand in his presence. And it's, we, we know this and it's perfect and fitting as we celebrate communion and prepare our hearts to do so. It's based on one reality. And that's because we're covered in the perfect and spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that does not provide exhortation enough for us to walk in purity, to walk in holiness, to walk in the reality of who we are, then we're at a loss. Yes, it's a battle. Our lives are a battle. And we live in a sin-filled, mud-slinging world. And it's constantly throwing things our way, trying to, to put a as it relates to the purity of righteousness that we're living out, it's trying to stain us, right? It's trying to stain us. And then there's a battle. But it's important that we be mindful that there are many places in this world that sling more mud than others. And ultimately, we choose where we'll go physically as well as in our minds. You choose where you will go on the internet and what you will allow to entertain your mind. You choose whether you will forgive someone and work on restoring a broken relationship. You choose whether you decide to hang out with unbelievers in your free time and how much 
influence and impact that you're going to allow to have them on your life. And whether you're going to pursue them for the sake of the gospel, you choose. We choose. And reflecting on who we are in Christ and our holy calling exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of Him. It allows us to, in part, start to begin to to worship Him now in in the reality. And yes, does He sympathize? Do we have a great sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with us and knows the strain and knows knows the battle, right? But we're also reminded in Hebrews that we haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood, have we? And that it's a battle. It's a battle. Well, we're the demons were terrified of Christ's presence. And not only do we see it reflected in their strong physical reaction, but we also see it in their really weak verbal disruption. Look at the end of verse 11. They shout, you are the son of God. The unclean spirits were terrified. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. His holy presence forced them to bow down. And yet here we see their rebellion surface as what they're trying to do is disrupt the Lord's ministry. That's the response. You might be wondering how this disrupts the Lord's ministry by them shouting the very thing that Jesus wants everyone to see, the reality of who he is, right? How is that disruptive then? You are the, the, the son of God, or sometimes they say, you the, oh, you, the holy one of God. And the reason it was disruptive, because Jesus wanted people. Jesus wanted people serving as his witnesses. He wanted converted hearts serving as his witnesses, not demons. And demons and demon-possessed people were the crazy ones. And would only serve as an impediment to his ministry to the watching world. So what does he do? Verse 12 says... And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And this word warn can also be translated rebuked. He ordered. He commanded. They were silenced by Christ's command. And you may recall back in our study in Mark chapter 1, in verse 34, it says, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak. Because they knew who he was. And again, it's based on the testimony. I think a good point of application, a principle that we can draw from here. If demons try to disrupt disrupt the ministry of the sinless Savior, how much more will they try to disrupt those who are trying to serve the Lord and serve his namesake? Right? Who actually have an old sin nature who are who are in who are vulnerable think about that paul reminds us that our battle is not of flesh and blood right it is it is it is spiritual and there are demonic influences around us and there are physical realities and manifestations of the things that that are are created that are evil around us they are, but an encouragement that we picked up in our study in 1 John 4, 4. It says, 
you are from God. Speaking to believers, the Apostle John is writing, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And just as it relates to our context, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the watching world. The watching world. And people see it. And people are curious. Three testimonies of Christ's ministry blessed you as you continue to, to recognize him and worship him as we try to be testimonies as well to the watching world. Well, let's pray and we'll transition to our time of communion. Our Father in heaven, we bow our heads right now as we should, humbled in worship, in reverence and awe of who you are. And it is so easy, Father, for us to lose sight. It's so, so easy for us to lose sight of the reality of all that you are, of all that Christ is of all that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. In our fallen world and in the battle of the, that's waged between the Holy Spirit and our fallen sin nature, it's so easy for us to be short-sighted. And what a day it's going to be when our short-sightedness is removed forever and we will only look deeply and richly into the reality and the depth of your presence forever and ever. Just as amazing grace is sung when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We'll have no less days to sing your praise. We'll have no less days than when we just begun. What a beautiful picture for us. We ask, Father, that as we prepare our hearts that you would um, help us to examine our hearts to see if we're in the right place to take communion today as a believer that you would not allow us to be insensitive or dismissive of the reality if there's unconfessed sin if there's a broken relationship if we're not walking or striving in unity with somebody in the church would you allow us to just have this cup passed today Allow us to be prepared to celebrate the next time that we have the opportunity. Thank you again for this wonderful ordinance, and we look forward to celebrating it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.